All right, we are going to be reading from Luke 3, 1 through 16. So please stand if you're able um, for a reading from God's holy word. And you guys can follow along with me and read the verses in bold with me. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea, and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I never, uh, I never had a really cool nickname. Uh, I've known some guys with cool nicknames. We had a, I had a friend on my lacrosse team in college who we called Spam. And I have no idea why we called him Spam. In fact, I didn't even know his name was Paul for like two years. I knew another guy in college, we called him Love MC. And it sounds like kind of a cool hip-hop DJ name, Love MC. But it was actually because when he showed up at his dorm room, he had like this basket full of cleaning supplies and, and Love My Carpet fell out. <laughs> and they, they, they named him Love MC and it stuck uh, for the rest of his college career. I think it's fun that Jesus' cousin John had a nickname. 
Um, maybe, maybe it didn't occur to you that John's last name is not actually the Baptist or the baptizer. Um, if, he, if he was given a nickname or, I mean, if he had a last name the way they did last names in the New Testament, then it would be um, Bar, Bar Zechariah, right? So the son of Zechariah. That's what verse 2 says. John, the son of Zechariah. That's his last name. Um, but Bap- Baptist or baptizer rolls off the tongue pretty cool. And uh, my question is, John wasn't the only one in the New Testament who baptized. And so why does he get the nickname and other people don't? What's so unique and so significant about John's baptism? I think this morning as we look at the passage, we'll find that it has something to do with the moment in history that he was baptizing. It has something to do with the message that his baptisms were designed to communicate. And I think it has something to do with his relationship to a coming Messiah. So this morning, uh, the baptizer moment, the baptizer message, and the baptizer Messiah, with a question mark. The moment. We, uh, we, did the, we do this thing every once in a while where we have somebody come up and lead us in reading, and I don't know if you've noticed, but we like formulate it just right to try to make Cameron say all the hard names so that we don't have to. Chapter 3 begins with this riveting introduction. The 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being the governor of Judea, and Herod being the tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Eutria. You did better than me, Cameron. I'm just going to leave it there. Um, This is sort of like looking at the, the time and date stamp on the top of an email. So most of the time you get the, the, you get the email and it doesn't matter. You don't even pay attention to that kind of stuff until it's important. Suddenly, um, suddenly it's of utmost importance if you're looking at that email because you think that it might be evidence in a criminal investigation. When was this sent? Who sent it? Where was it sent? Or for instance, maybe closer to home, uh, you're looking at the email to determine whether or not your TV is still under warranty when you contacted the company, right? Am I still good? Luke lists the names and titles of the officials in authority over the region of Judea where the events that we're reading happened. He starts with the, 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 the biggest honcho and makes his way down to the smallest and most local. And in so doing, um, he puts a timestamp on the moment that he's writing about. Luke's timestamp, if we, if we use his uh, intro here and cross-reference it with other historians like Josephus, um, we can narrow down the, the time and place of the events that he is writing to uh, happening in Judea sometime between the three years, sometimes in the three years between 26 and 29 A.D., I'm sorry we couldn't be more accurate than that. He doesn't include a weather forecast, but that's pretty specific. Luke's precision is intended to help us understand that John the Baptist and the events that he is going to describe for us uh, 
And eventually the events in Jesus' life in ministry are events that happened in real time and space, in a moment in history, in a place on the earth that we live on. As much as today is a day in which um, Joe Biden is president, Gavin Newsom is governor of California, Daryl Steinberg is the mayor of Sacramento, Daniel Yoon is one of the co-pastors of Grace Sacramento in Tahoe Park where you are meeting. Luke wants us to know that this is real. But Luke wants to tell us not only where these events happen in, uh, in history, but he also is concerned to fit, uh, fit them into the history of God's relationship with the people that he created. Luke wants to make sure that we are aware of where these events happen, what, where this moment lands in the history of salvation. And so he includes these two other really incredible lines. In verse 2, he says, The word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah. And in verses 4 and 5, he quotes from Isaiah chapter 40. Now, when he says, The word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, this is almost verbatim how many of the prophetic books in the Old Testament begin. Hosea 1.1, the word of the Lord came to Hosea, the son of Beri. Joel 1.1, the word of the Lord came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Jonah 1.1, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, and so on and so on. Luke wants us to realize, he wants to be very clear that God is speaking. In fact, this is the God who spoke throughout the Old Testament through the prophets. That God is speaking again, though he has been silent for 400 years since the last prophet spoke, God is speaking again. He's broken his silence, as the clickbait always says, right? God breaks his silence about when the Messiah is coming. And then he goes on to quote Isaiah 40. He says, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled. Every mountain and hill shall be laid low. And the crooked shall become straight, the rough places shall become level ways, and the all flesh shall see the salvation of our God. Isaiah 40, this passage in Isaiah 40 was one of the key passages that had led people to believe that the next time they heard from a prophet, the next time the word of God came to a prophet, that that person would be the herald of a coming Messiah, the one who would come to save God's people. And the picture that Isaiah is painting when, he, when, he, when uh, he writes these words actually refers to a custom that people would have been familiar with in the Old Testament. In the ancient world, when an emperor or a conquering king was coming into town, they would send a herald ahead to announce their arrival. And this was uh, part pomp and circumstance, but part really functional because the road commission of most cities wasn't, they hadn't designed the entrance to their cities to accommodate the size of the military and, uh, and, the, and the band, the, the whole entourage that this king would be arriving with. So there was literal work to do um, to prepare an on-ramp for the king and his army to come into their town. It's uh, something like uh, moder a modern city furiously preparing to host the Olympics, right? They're building stadiums and they're putting up Olympic villages and they're dealing with blithe and sweeping things under the rug and all of that. Um, 
That's how Isaiah describes the coming of an ancient king. And he says he would send a messenger ahead of him through the wilderness to each city announcing that he was approaching. And he would do that in time for them to do all of the civil engineering that they needed to do to build an on-ramp into their city. Uh, And Isaiah says, so that every valley would be filled and the mountains and the hills should be made low and the crooked places made straight. He's describing that preparation uh, for the coming king. Isaiah had promised that there would be a voice crying in the wilderness. And Luke says that John is that voice. He is the advance man running ahead of an approaching king, ahead of a promised Messiah. And he's pretty specific about what it would mean for people to prepare the way for the Lord. Let's look at his message, the baptizer message. In this moment, John is very specific about what he's come to say. A little more than a year ago, we decided at the Carpenter House that in the middle of a pandemic, we were going to put an addition on our house. We call it the den. And uh, I thought, no big deal, I'll have uh, my son, who I sometimes call Dingo, Dingo and his friend Big Nate help me. We'll dig out the grass and we'll use our shovels. We'll dig down to prepare, you know, the place uh, for the foundation of the den. Man, did I underestimate how much preparation it was going to take to prepare this place. And it wasn't until we rented one of those diggers with tractor treads two times and multiple trips to the landfill with loads of dirt that we had finally prepared a space for a 300 square foot um, room with a crawl space underneath it. Civil engineering is hard work. It's heavy. It takes a long time, but I think it's a good analogy for what it looks like to prepare the way for a Messiah. I think that John was intentional about using that illustration because it comes clear John isn't actually talking about moving tons of dirt to make an on-ramp into Jerusalem, but he's talking about what it takes to build an on-ramp in your heart to prepare yourself to meet the Savior. John the baptizer comes, and it says he comes preaching repentance. And uh, in the the scripture, that means he comes uh, preaching a message that says, turn away from sin and self and toward God. That's the definition uh, that the Bible would give for repentance. It's Maybe it would be easier for us to think about it. It's, uh, it's what the, the 12-step program is talking about when they get to the first step and they say, um, admit that you are powerless. We would say, admit that you're powerless over the sin in your life. That your life has become unmanageable. All of your own strategies to improve it and control it and overcome have come up short. There's nothing that you can do in your own power. In fact, you're just dealing with consequences and not the results that you hope for. And it's easy, I guess, I suppose it's easy to say repent, right? That happens a lot in the scripture. Um, but, but to just come and say repent is like, uh, and, say, and thinking that it's easy is like thinking that you can dig a foundation in an afternoon for a den with a couple of 12-year-olds and some shovels. Anyone who is honest knows that it's not easy to turn from yourself. It's not easy to turn from the way that you've always done. It's not so easy to move mountains of pride in your life and ask for help. It's not easy to fill in valleys of self-pity enough that you could hear encouragement and have someone come alongside you. If we're honest, most of us have a bunch of things 
that we would like God to show up and do for us. We have expectations and hopes and a list, maybe a punch list that we would give him if he said he was coming. And if we're honest, most of us wouldn't put confronting our own personal sin and failure anywhere on the list. It's not what we're interested in having him do. People in 29 29 AD had a lot of expectations of what a Messiah would come and what he would do when he arrived, specifically uh, that he would come and save them from Caesar and Pontius Pilate and all of the powers of Rome, that he'd liberate Jerusalem. But God was sending Jesus not primarily, uh, not God was sending Jesus primarily with a view of our spiritual condition in mind. Uh, he was coming to save us from our own sin. And so he needed someone to run ahead, someone to help people get ready and recognize the Savior when they saw him because his mission was not what people expected. And, they, and he wanted people to be able to identify Jesus as the Messiah when, he saw, when they saw him. And so John comes preaching repentance. Specifically, it says that he proclaimed a baptism of repentance, and that's uh, it's that fact that he was baptizing, which is so unique, and, and the fact that he was baptizing that allowed John to teach about what true repentance really is, what he's really talking about when he uses that word specifically. Apparently, some of the people who came out into the wilderness to get baptized were phony repenters. He, John says to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the wrath to come? He recognized that there's lots of us uh, that don't really want to do things differently. We're not really interested in turning from what the Bible calls sin, our own selfish uh, desires and the kingdoms that we build for ourselves. Um, He recognizes that uh, there's lots of us who don't really want to turn from our sin. We just want to escape from its consequences. And so uh, we like our lust, and we like our anger, and we, we're enjoying the little bit that we're skimming off the top. We just don't want to go to jail for stealing or lose our family because of our anger or get sick with some kind of disease because of our promiscuity. And, uh, and John says that's not repentance. Your heart is hard. You're you're not interested in turning from what you're doing. You're just interested in avoiding the consequences, and you won't know salvation when you see it. And uh, and he says that some of those who were coming out uh, to the wilderness didn't think that they needed to repent. This is really interesting. Before the time of Christ, a baptism or a ritual washing was something that only somebody outside of Judaism would do. It was a sign of conversion. So someone from a pagan religion or a Gentile nation surrounding Israel would, uh, like Naaman does in 2 Kings chapter 5, they'd wash themselves. Naaman washes himself in the Jordan River as a sign that he's following the God of Israel, that he wants to purify himself and join the people of Israel. But John is baptizing Jews. He's implying that their religion and that their ethnicity, the fact that they're already sort of in the inside group, 
is not enough. That they, the chosen people, need to repent of their sin like everyone else. That they were going to need more than a ritual. They were going to need more than membership in the right group to save them. That they needed to be saved from their sin. That they needed to be forgiven. And he says to them, don't, don't begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God's able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. It's scandalous. It's a scandalous message. So John's presence in his ministry begs the obvious question, right? But is the baptizer the Messiah? I was thinking about this. Moses didn't get a cool nickname like the sea splitter. And David didn't get a cool, a cool nickname, even though the giant killer would be really cool. Uh, but there's this big stir in the wilderness by the Jordan River, and there's a guy out there named John, and he gets the name Baptizer because he's telling people that want to get baptized that maybe they're fakes, and he's telling people that don't want to get baptized, the powerful people, the inside people, mind you, that they need to repent. And so the obvious expectation builds. Uh, the question is whether or not John might be the one. He might be the Christ. And I think maybe a parallel question or a way to understand that question is this. Is repentance enough? Is repentance enough? If we turn from our sin, is that enough to save us? And John says, no. He says, he who is mightier than me is coming. I baptize with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. In, Mark, uh, in the Gospel of Mark chapter 1, verse 15, it says that when Jesus arrived on the scene, his message was not just to repent, but to repent and believe in the Gospel. The good news. Uh, repentance is just an on-ramp. It's just the preparation for believing good news. It's heart preparation is what we're learning from John. And what is that good news? In Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit cuts people to the heart who are listening to Peter's Pentecost sermon, and they say, what should we do? Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so if repentance is turning from my sin, um, if we really think about it, we realize that turning from my sin doesn't make much sense if there isn't anything new to turn to, any new life to live. Unless you're turning from sin and selfishness to something else, what's the point? If there's no such thing as forgiveness, right, at... Uh, I wanna, I'm turning from my sin, but I've already, I'm already on the hook for what my rage has done in my family. I've already, I already live unreconciled to the people that I've hurt. Uh, I'm already feeling distant from the Lord. I'm already estranged from relationships because of my sin. I can turn from them now, but what of, well, what of what's already happened? What of the people that are already hurt, the ramifications that have already come? But John says something different. He says, it's, it's not my baptism that will save you. My baptism is just preparation. 
It's just an on-ramp, but there's a baptism coming, he says, that restores you to a relationship with God. A baptism, he, he says, is a baptism of the Holy Spirit and with fire. There's a baptism coming um, that will have the ability to burn up the consequences of sin and will leave only forgiveness, that will, a, a baptism coming that will introduce a relationship back with God, with the Holy Spirit. And if I believe that, then I can start living a lifestyle of repentance. Then repentance is not just, it, it's the on-ramp to a whole new life. John says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. If, if there is forgiveness, if there's new life in believing in the gospel, if I no longer have to find some way to do penance because I find that, uh, you know, I have two coats and someone else has none, and so I want to try to justify why I, why I have two coats. I can say, um, sometimes I'm, John's example is the person with two tunics, and he says, look, if, uh, if there's forgiveness, then you can say, I'm greedy. It's true. And nothing I do to try to justify my two coats makes a difference. I, I need the Lord. He's my only hope. Lord, forgive me. Not my two coats are going to save me, uh, no matter how beautiful they are. That's John's instruction when he talks about living a life that's bearing fruit for repentance. He describes it in the marketplace. He says, with the tax collectors, imagine the work relationships that would be restored if we lived a lifestyle of repentance in the workplace. You're right. I was trying to take credit for your work. I do that. Forgiveness is my only hope. Uh, I have no excuse. I need God to wipe away my sin. Try that next to the water cooler. And he says it to soldiers. Imagine um, how your head would spin if someone said to you, you know, it's obvious I've been trying to physically intimidate you and threat you with violence to get my way. I do that sometimes. I hate it. Please, forgiveness is my only hope. I need the blood of Christ. If we were people who lived a lifestyle of, you realize that you've got to have that hope of uh, salvation and forgiveness or a lifestyle of repentance doesn't make any sense. You need to justify yourself. But if we are a people who lived a lifestyle of repentance, people wouldn't know what to do with us because most people don't see any alternative to self-preservation, to self-justification, to denial, because most of us don't believe in the reality of God's forgiveness. When John talks about a different baptism that's coming, he isn't suggesting that there will be a ritual that will come that will be able to save us. But what he's describing is the spiritual reality that a Christian baptism represents. That being baptized into Christ involves some way of going under water, right? Dying with Christ, realizing that the death he died should have been ours. The rational consequences of the way that I live and the way that I destroy life with my decisions, uh, Jesus received on the cross. He died, and when, I, when we're baptized, it's, it's, it's symbolic that we died with Christ, and then in that Christian baptism, you come up out of the water. You're raised with Christ out of the grave, 
rising with Christ in his resurrection, and for the first time realizing that there is a possibility of life on the other side of sin, made possible by his resurrection. We don't have to deny it. We don't have to justify our sin. We don't have to hide from it. We can just admit it, and we can hate it, and we can know that Jesus hates it too, and he came to destroy it in his own death and to give us new life. Do you believe that? Jesus says, repent and believe the good news. That's the message. I think that uh, I'd just point out uh, to us that um, a liturgy earlier, uh, Calvin mentioned that we call this service order a liturgy, the work of the people. And a liturgy that uh, has only confession but no assurance is uh, a, a terribly fearful thing. Um, I, would go on, I would go even further and say a liturgy that has only confession and doesn't bring us to the table where, again, we see the broken body of Jesus taking our sin and his blood poured out for our forgiveness um, is... Or, could, or would be, right? We'd be, it would be just the baptism of John. Repent. We know sin is bad. We have no solution. My friends, I want to invite you to uh, God's solution. 